1: I am your host, Vic Jarami, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national, regional, and local headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress, local elected officials and other high-profile public figures. In a few minutes after the news, I interview LA City Attorney and Mayoral Candidate Mike Feuer. So stay tuned. Here are some news items from over the weekend and this morning. The House Select Committee investigating the Capitol insurrection is now in possession of White House records that provide new details about a phone call Donald Trump made to Republican Representative Jim Jordan on January 6, 2021. A key focus of the committee's investigation has been on the run-up to the insurrection And the many ways Trump and his allies, including those in Congress, tried to overturn the election results.
2: There are those in our party who believe that, as the presiding officer over the joint session of Congress, that I possess unilateral authority to reject electoral college votes. And I heard this week that President Trump said I had the right to overturn the election. But President Trump is wrong. I had no right to overturn the election. The presidency belongs to the American people and the American people alone. And frankly, there is no idea more un American than the notion that any one person could choose the American president. Under the Constitution, I had no right to change the outcome of our election. And Kamala Harris will have no right to overturn the election when we beat them in 2024. Look, I understand the disappointment many feel about the last election. I was on the ballot. (laughs) But whatever the future holds, I know we did our duty that day. John Quincy Adams reminds us, duty is ours, results are God's. And the truth is there's more at stake than our party or political fortunes. Men and women, if we lose faith in the Constitution, we won't just lose elections, we'll lose our country.
3: If I run and if I win, we will treat those people from January 6th fairly. We will treat them fairly. And if it requires pardons, we will give them pardons because they are being treated so unfairly. This hasn't happened to all of the other atrocities that took place recently. Nothing like this has happened. What that unselect committee is doing and what the people are doing that are running those prisons, it's a disgrace. It's a disgrace. We will treat them fairly, and we will take care of the people of this country, all of the people of this country. The Democrat Socialist Bill also includes a $1.3 billion payoff to the fake news industry. These people, but we're giving them money. They don't deserve it. By subsidizing and hiring of reporters at media outlets all across the country, meaning liberal media outlets, can you imagine, on top of everything else, billions of dollars is being spent to take care of these people that don't report truth. They don't report truth. Meanwhile, the media says nothing about Biden's handling of COVID. Despite all of the vaccines that we came up with, therapeutics that we came up, and knowledge that we gave, Biden's come up with this horrible period of time. He hasn't done the job because now we have more people that have died of COVID in 2021 with the vaccines, with the therapeutics. More people died in 2021 than in all of 2020. But the media is silent. They don't talk about that. They, You know, they're allowed to say that about me. They called it illegitimate. They called it everything in the book. It was fine when I say it. Now, here's the difference. Hillary conceded. I never conceded.
1: The coronavirus pandemic reached a grim new milestone in the United States on Friday with the nation's cumulative death toll from COVID-19 surpassing 900,000, even as the daily number of lives lost has begun to level off. The latest tally marks an increase of more than 100,000 U.S. COVID-19 fatalities since December 12th coinciding with a surge of infections and hospitalizations driven by the highly contagious Omicron variant of the virus. The Duke of York is due to give evidence under oath next month as part of the U S civil sex assault case against him. Andrew will face a deposition on March 10th in London in what has been described as neutral location. Gasoline prices in parts of Southern California hit all-time highs Friday, and as refineries begin switching over to a more expensive blend, costs could continue to soar at the pump in the coming weeks, AAA said. In the Los Angeles Long Beach area, a gallon of regular unleaded 87 jumped 5 cents over the past week to reach an average of $4.72. The highest recorded in the region, according to Auto Club data. The previous record was set just last November. Let's get blunt.
3: Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt.
1: Today, for Let's Get Blunt, I want to talk about accountability lip service when it comes from politicians, policymakers, uh, agencies, etc. I'm going to talk about uh, local. And within the US as well as international. So, what's happening right now is after Azerbaijan attacked Artsakh, also known as Nagorno Karabakh, and massacred 5,000 Armenians and occupied 80% of Artsakh, they have now started to systematically destroy monuments, churches, cemeteries, uh, and other important structures one by one to sort of get rid of any traces of the fact that Armenians have lived there over a millennia. And so now, what happened was about a month ago, the International Court of Justice, they held Azerbaijan responsible in a judgment, in a lawsuit that was filed by the government of Armenia. And they were told, the International Court of Justice, uh, uh, instructed to Azerbaijan that they they cannot do that. They cannot do what's essentially cultural genocide. But... (laughs) The Azerbaijani government, a couple of days ago, they um, formed this group, this task force that sort of released a statement saying they're going to go around and uh, take off scriptures and carvings going back centuries, some over millennia of uh you know monasteries and uh, churches and cemeteries of course their propaganda and disinformation uh, machine is saying that uh uh, armenians put those there after the fact that ancient caucasian albanian uh, monument which is absurd the civilization of caucasian albania was no nowhere near artsakh ever and they came they sort of that civilization has died out about 700 years ago. So it's just absurd. But what I'm getting at is this. So the court of justice issued this um, ruling, but there's no enforcement. So Azerbaijan, because of its uh, backing, you know, Azerbaijan has has oil and gas. So a lot of nations are very thirsty for that. So they're sort of keeping quiet and uh, don't want to offend Aliyev and Azerbaijan. So they're not doing anything about it. So Azerbaijan taking advantage of this is just doing whatever it wants, and the courts uh, are not doing anything. And nobody else is. UNESCO isn't. European Union, Council of Europe, OSCE, uh, the UN, nothing. Nothing is being done. It's just it's just nuts. And it reminded me of a couple of years ago when a lot of buildings in Los Angeles, a lot of uh, apartment buildings were being uh, retrofitted for earthquake, the seismic retrofitting. And the city had passed you know, all these laws and given landlords a deadline and said what they can and cannot do. Well, the landlords were basically doing, and this could be still happening, I'm sure it is, uh, it's just I don't hear about it as much anymore, is landlords would basically do this retrofit without doing all the required required items for their tenants so that they can continue to have a place to live that's actually livable, habitable. Uh, and they would make their tenants miserable. I mean they would, you know, they would do this retrofitting where the entire building is under construction. and the tenants are supposed to live there, some work there, some are disabled or sick uh, because they didn't want to, spend the money to put them up in a hotel. And there was no accountability. There was no enforcement from City of LA. If you called to open a case and file a complaint, um, it fell on deaf ears. Uh, People called and opened multiple complaints, but it never went anywhere. No one followed up with them, or they would be told that there aren't enough investigators. There were like two or three investigators for the entire LA County, which is absurd. So, you know, it's nice that these ceremonial formality laws or procedures um, are sort of passed, but there's got to be a follow-up. There's got, got to be enforcement. The, these monuments in Artsakh are extremely important. Some of them go back to the 4th and 5th century. And yet Azerbaijan, because it's holding a lot of nations hostage with its Caspian oil and gas, and ability to buy uh, billions—yes, with a B—worth of weapons from nations, uh, among other things, among other reasons, it's just doing whatever it wants to do. And uh, what we are getting is a lot of lip service from, you know, Charles Michel at European Union, co-president of European Union, as well as uh, you know, other so-called leaders in Europe. Uh, of course, um, Secretary Blinken keeps uh, playing both sides, ism so uh, there's not much uh, happening from there. Anyways, I just needed to put that out there because it's uh, it's a very common thing that happens with a lot of things where, yes, the law is there or the policy is there or the procedure is there, but who's enforcing it? And who's holding to account those that violate them? So there it is. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt.
0: The Blunt Post with Vic.
1: Mike Feuer, a Democrat, was a Los Angeles council member from 1995 to 2001, representing the 5th District of Los Angeles. He then served in California State Assembly from 2006 to 2012, serving the 42nd Assembly District. He has been the L.A. city attorney since 2013 and is now a candidate for L.A. mayor. Uh, Good morning, Mike. Thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic this morning. How are you today?
0: Oh, Vic, it is wonderful to be with you. And I was saying it's really a, a privilege. You've done such important journalism and it's great to have a chance to talk to you this morning.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it. I've been a big fan and I've uh, sort of watched you through the years, having been a council member in in the assembly and city attorney since 2013. And so so you're definitely one of LA's, you know, leaders, major leaders. And uh, it seems like we say this every few years, we say the same thing. There's so much going on. There's so much influx and uh, so much, um, you know, in chaos in a way. And I I didn't think that we would say this sort of in the post-Trump era, if I dare to say it's post-Trump era, because we don't know what's coming. But it seems like uh, COVID has sort of put us back into this sort of, things are back into a very, hey, I'm just going to say it, chaotic mode in on a national level, on a state level, and of course, Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Before I put anything uh, more in your, any more words in your mouth, what is your general perspective in terms of where we are uh, in LA County, in city of LA, uh, or just just where we are politically as well as socially and the economy?
0: Sure. So I think it's a really important question. And just to put to bed the preliminary part of your question, we cannot go back to a Trump era. And I do have to say, look just last week what the the National Republican Party did. It censured Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger just because they had the temerity to participate in the um, discussion about what happened January 6th. But worse, they called what happened January 6th part of political discourse, as though there's anything remotely normal about an attempt to take over the government. And so, I mean, I have to say, it is by no means outside the realm of possibility that an energized Republican Party can try to take back the White House and can truly jeopardize democracy forever. So and and I want to use it as a segue into your question about what's happening locally, because, as you know, as city attorney, when Trump was in office, we sued the administration again and again over a variety of issues. I went to LAX to try to get the Muslim detainees released the weekend of the Muslim travel ban, because if you remember back to those days, Vic, it felt like our country was slipping away. And I wasn't about to be a spectator when that happened. So you put that in a context, uh, and then you say, well, what's happening now? And I have to say, very simply, our city's in crisis now. Um, it is It is the pandemic, but not just the pandemic. We have a homelessness emergency. It's not a problem. It's an emergency. We have an affordable housing crisis. It's not a challenge. It's a crisis. We, public safety is becoming more and more of a front burner issue in a city where people are on edge because violent crime, especially gun violence is escalating in a meaningful way. Plus the health impact of the pandemic, plus the economic consequences of the pandemic, especially on small business. And you layer all these elements onto what we've just come through nationally with Trump. And I I think it's fair to say, I have never seen our city be more but our residents be more uptight Um, and even good news is seen through a lens of the downside of it and we see this nationally for example you know the economy is roaring back it's important to focus on the fact that inflation at least temporarily is going up but you know last week our job numbers in the nation, unemployment crept up to 4% because more people are trying to enter the workforce. But yet there's a lot of critique as as that news comes out. Gee, the unemployment went up. So I I think that we need a sea change in what's happening right here, right now. And I I really appreciate you breaking that up because I, I think that residents are looking for leaders to give voice to the frustration and the anxiety that they feel but also to say, you know, we've got this, we can handle this. And I think we can.
1: Yeah, I I really enjoyed that. You said uh, you said about this latest development with the GOP saying that what happened January 6th was just political discourse. It's absurd. Uh, It's uh, when do we use that as a way of justifying uh, taking over uh, a federal building, uh, trying to overthrow um, Uh, you know, our political system, it just seems uh, so unfathomable. But then again, we've, we've heard uh, so many other unbelievable things from uh, uh, Mitch McConnell and Trump and uh, Lindsey Graham and such. So it's, uh, you're right, we can't go back there. Uh, Another thing that um, I appreciate that you said is, I mean, that we are in a crisis. And I, and I echo that, LA, I feel like this is the really first time that there is a lot of sort of anxiety. There's like a very visible anxiety in LA. This is the Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with LA City Attorney Mike Feuer, who is also a candidate for LA Mayor. I'm going to sort of address like the biggest thing on everyone's mind, I think, is um the unhoused, right? Now, every every candidate for mayor has a plan, um, and a lot of you sort of overlap, right? You have a proven uh, track record of what you've done for the unhoused from from your heart program that you established to LA door to uh, operation uh, Clean Slate and such. so, but moving forward, um, what sets you apart? What are the big things that, that voters need to know about what your plan is?
0: You know, I'm really glad you asked Vic because the major difference between my opponents and me on these issues is the specificity of where I'm coming from. You know, I think that voters have had it with slogans when it, and when it comes to the issue of homelessness in our city, We've heard a lot of platitudes, and I'd like to cut through that for a second. So my first day as mayor, I declare a state of emergency on homelessness. It gives the mayor additional authority as an executive. It also says to the public, we get it. We have to be galvanizing the energy of the public. This is an emergency right now. Next, um, I wrote a piece four years ago for the LA Times, and all my opponents have borrowed from this piece ever since. I wrote that if we had an earthquake or a major natural disaster like that, we would have a FEMA field general here on the ground in Los Angeles leading recovery. They would have goals and timeframes. And if things weren't cutting it, there'd be somebody else here because the imperative would be, we have to recover right now. I wrote that we have the moral equivalent of that natural disaster, it's homelessness, And I wrote, no one's in charge. And you know, the Times chose to title my piece, LA needs a homeless czar. You know, you can call it whatever the title is, but here was what I was getting at. At City Hall, at the moment I wrote that piece, there were many people working hard on the issue of homelessness, but they each owned a little tiny piece of it. So authority was diffuse. And as a leader with a lot of experience running things, I know you cannot tackle a major problem and have no one who is transparently accountable with measurable goals to get it done. Someone's gotta be in charge. So as mayor, I will make it so. You know, by the way, I initiated the reform <laughs> of the city's charter in the city council when I was there in the 1990s. And one step in that process that was very important to me was that the mayor be in charge of the city departments. And that happened. You would not know it from the state of the city right now. You would think there are 15 different council members and 15 different rules in the city. And as mayor, I wanna change that. When I say someone's gonna be in charge, we should have a common set of rules for how we grapple with the issue of homelessness in our city. And the issues and the rules are the same in Studio City as they are in Venice, as they are in Watts, as they are in Boyle Heights, Um, next. There are about 10 general managers in the city who touch the establishment and approval of homeless housing, affordable housing. Um, I'm going to create a strike team in City Hall of those general managers with one imperative. If you don't cut the time it takes to cite and approve homeless housing, there'll be someone else in your job. Because in an emergency, that's how you govern. My opponents aren't nearly this precise. I want to go on. In terms of our street engagement strategies, I'm going to change them. Um, As you know, Vic, I used to lead Setic Legal Services. It's a nonprofit free legal services program that helps the poorest people in our city. When I led Setic before I was in elected office, we helped 50,000 of the most vulnerable people in Los Angeles, including people experiencing homelessness throughout our city. Having said that, I think it's really important for us when we grapple with homelessness, to lead with humanity and housing and services. But we also need to say that our public space has got to be safe for everybody. And Vic, last year, 1600 people experiencing homelessness died on LA County streets. So it's not safe for them. And it's obviously degrades our whole city to have homelessness be as pervasive as it is. So our outreach strategies need to include sir. The streets are no place for you to live. We have an alternative for you. Let me show you on my iPhone. It has, there's a nice place and there are services there, but there's also going to be a date after which you cannot stay here. Not safe for you, not good for the community. That has not been the clear imperative. I, as city attorney, called in the former general leader, general manager of of LASA, the LA Homeless uh, Services Authority, and said, tell me what your goals are. I couldn't tell what the objectives were what the people in the field, what are they trying to accomplish how many fewer people will be on the street next year because of this outreach and there was no answer to that question. This needs to be a change, by the way, there are other elements to what i've discussed the city and the county have to radically change the way we work together because we don't on mental health and substance abuse that there are 1,300 vacant substance abuse beds in the county right now. For our listeners, and look, I've heard council members say, hey, you know, the county controls mental health and substance abuse, that's not the city's role. And that is technically true. But as mayor, I won't stand for it. We have to be working deeply, closely together on these issues because while housing is essential, so are mental health and substance abuse services. And the reason, by the way, There are 1300 vacant substance abuse beds because the doctor in charge of the county substance abuse system says, I'd require sobriety and the outreach workers from the homeless authority won't place people in a unit situation that requires that. So we have services that are going unused and yet you and I both know that substance abuse on our streets is fueling not just homelessness per se, but also that addiction fuels crime in some instances because people have to get, feed their habit and it makes life dangerous. On mental health, the doctor in charge of mental health for the county, his words, has said we have an open-air asylum on our streets. I, as city attorney, have reached out to him to say if that's the case why are we spending money the way we've always spent it when there is a proposal for example to transform services in Hollywood that the county said they would put in place but never did. So. These are elements of how I'm going to lead as mayor, being relentless on these issues, not abdicating responsibility to another jurisdiction, because our listeners couldn't care less if it's the county or the city who's in charge. They don't want people who are decompensating as we speak on our streets. They don't want to live in a city where there are people half naked on our sidewalks. They don't want to live in a city where a mom who can't afford first and last and security deposit is relegated to being on the street with her kids. And neither do I. Um, by the way, last thing I want to say prevention is a huge issue. Um, you know, we housed in 2020, the city housed 12,438 people experiencing homelessness. By the way, our city didn't look any different the next year for that because people fell back into homelessness or more people than were housed were becoming homeless. It is so, even if you couldn't care less about humanity and reaching out to other human beings and their dignity, from a purely dollars and cents standpoint, it is much more cost effective to keep people in their tendencies than to grapple with their needs when they fall into homelessness. So sorry for the long statement on that, but you ask what right. differentiates me on this issue? With me, you get a leader who understands the detail but also has a vision for a city where homelessness is a thing of the past.
1: This is the Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jurami, and you are listening to my interview with LA City Attorney Mike Feuer, who is also a candidate for LA Mayor. Well, this issue is so ginormous that how could you not have a long answer? And after you said it, it makes so, sen- <clears throat> so much sense to me to really have it to declare this as an emergency, because we've sort of been stuck in this hamster's wheel. And yet it gets bigger and bigger. And it just so it makes so much sense for the new mayor to say, you know what, let's just pause and make this like put this on our front burner and deal with this. Now, of course, I hope that most reasonable people know that Uh, You can't completely get rid of all homelessness. It's just, it's virtually impossible. It's not just an LA problem or California problem. It's a national problem, but um, definitely a lot of what you said makes sense. And it is also surprising that despite everything that's happened, we have this booming uh, real estate market as well as the rents. I mean, a one bedroom, not in a, you know, not in a high rise or luxury building, in most of uh, most cities within LA proper they start at about 21 2200 one bedrooms uh, just can't fathom you know so many people working class the, the the blue collar the the students the sort of new to LA how they can actually afford that so it's uh, I mean it makes a complete sense all right so I don't want to put you on the spot but I, I guess I will for a second please I like leaders and I appreciate leaders that sort of come in and they, whatever their style is, they really, for lack of a better way of saying it, is they, they grab the bull by the horn and they go for it, especially if it's a problem that's been sort of uh, talked about for years and years. And I see this with, uh, with District Attorney Gascon and what he's done is to really address some of the inequalities and some of the discrimination that's been sort of endemic in our society and our law enforcement and such. What do you think about that? What do you think about his style? I mean, of course, he's being criticized and, uh, you know, there's there's an other side to that. And I and I see that and I acknowledge that. Uh, what is your perspective on that?
0: Uh, it's a great question. So let me let me talk about my approach when it comes to criminal justice reform. And then I'll segue into a couple comparisons. So when I became city attorney, I wanted to make it a priority to lead with criminal justice reform that reduces recidivism, recidivism, you know, repeat offenses, because if you're reducing the likelihood that someone repeats their offense, you're doing at least two things. You're making the neighborhood safer. And that strongly implies that you've done something to change the trajectory of the offender's life for the better. So that's my measure of success, reducing repeat crime. And I have a whole array of programs that are based in the principle of restorative justice, where we say to people that we will not prosecute you if you complete the program that I'm going to describe in a second. There are several examples. I'll give you one that I think will make it easy for our listeners to have a sense of where I'm coming from. So I created a program called neighborhood justice in our office and cities around the country have sought us out to see if they can replicate it here's what it looks like. The let we take nonviolent offenders and we say if you take responsibility for what you did and complete neighborhood justice, we will not prosecute you there'll be no criminal record. let's take an example as a petty theft, for instance, so that kind of a crime so. We train volunteers who we recruit from throughout Los Angeles. We have a couple hundred more than that volunteers. We train them in restorative justice principles. And then they serve in panels of three in a community service office in a neighborhood where the offense occurred. They live in the neighborhood and the offender committed an offense in that neighborhood. Offender comes in, we call them the participant. They come in and the panelists asked a lot of questions. Why did you do what you did? Of course, you take responsibility for it. Tell us about your life. Let's talk about the crime, the whole thing. I sat and watched one of these early on, and um, I can say the the crime involved was, in fact, the theft of what you would call quality of life and necessity of life from a neighborhood store. And one of the panelists properly, they were very empathetic with the person who had committed the offense because this person was sleeping in her car. Um, with her kids. And one of the panelists said, you know, I get that, but you should know I am very poor myself. I shop in that store and I spend more money than I should because the owner has to put extra amount of money in the cost to take account of people who steal from him. It. It's not a victimless crime. It was a very good raw exchange between people. And then the panel imposes an obligation. It might be tutor young kids, or clean up graffiti, or fix vandalized property, or lecture high school students on the dangers of alcohol, whatever it might be. And we try to put in place some kind of intervention, like job training. Mm -hmm. Here is the story. We prosecute misdemeanors in my office. Nationally, misdemeanors recommit offenses at huge rates, 40, 50, 60%. In our program that I just described, we've had thousands of people go through it, only 5% repeat any crime. No one reoffends basically. And there are two of our panelists, the volunteers, took it on themselves to write opinion pieces for the LA Times describing how valuable they feel because they have turned the neighborhood around and they've affected somebody's life. So that to me is what justice reform looks like. There is a prosecution if people don't complete the program, if they back out. There is accountability through people who do participate. They are accountable for what they did. And yet their lives have changed for the better because they've gone through this program again and again. So there is a difference because the DA has said, "In again, we prosecute misdemeanors in LA City. He prosecutes misdemeanors in LA County. Right. So there are some differences he has chosen for some of the crimes where we prosecute and people go through neighborhood justice, for example, he's chosen not to prosecute at all. And, and, and the difference, I will speak for myself, although he should be able to describe why he does what he does. But from my standpoint, I want us to have people feel that accountability. I want to find a way to connect them with a system that could actually improve their lives. I want neighbors where the offense occurred not to feel that lawlessness is okay I want them to feel that the community can get better because most of these offenses are committed in neighborhoods where uh, the neighborhood needs help, where it's not as clean and safe as it should be. So that's where I'm coming from. Now, another another thing I will say is, I, I think you know that throughout my career, the last 25 years and more, I focused on preventing gun violence. I, I was deeply honored when President Obama was in the White House, They asked me at the White House to come please speak to mayors and governors and legislators across the United States because Congress wasn't doing a damn thing. And they wanted to have an example of a local leader who could make an impact and show others how to do the same thing. This is a deep and personal cause for me. So we treat gun crime very seriously in my office. We prosecute like the illegal possession of weapons for example, on the street. That's a serious thing from my standpoint. There are issues of whether the DA will prosecute enhancements, add penalties when a gun is used. Um, I think that there are appropriate circumstances when that enhancement should be charged. So there are areas of potential disagreement here, but I will say say this, Um, I just produced two weeks ago an eight point plan for reducing gun violence in our city because gun violence is up 53% in two years mostly concentrated in underserved neighborhoods of Los Angeles. And it's not right. Um, And I have reached out to the police chief and the DA, for example, to elaborate on a couple of my ideas that involve working together to try to tamp down that gun violence. We are partners in a criminal justice system, and we need to find as many ways as we can to work together to make the community safer. So I hope that's responsive to your questions, some comparisons and so forth. But I have very strong views. That if we embark on a justice system whose focus is how do we reduce repeat crime, we can go a long way.
1: This is the blunt post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with LA City Attorney Mike Feuer, who is also a candidate for LA Mayor. You were very clear. And just for the record, I've interviewed District Attorney Gascon a couple of times. So, But you made it very clear with the where you overlap and where the differences are and what your plan is. So I appreciate that. The next one, uh, and I'm not going to keep you too long, but I am, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a gay Armenian American. So I'm sort of have all these sort of different right. identities all over the place. I recently um, watched you during the Stonewall Democratic Clubs forum. And uh, of course, you know, candidates that come to a forum like that, for the most part, they have a pretty good record. And you have a great record. You've stood up from back in the day against DOMA and, and, and so on and so forth. So you definitely have, you, you come in with a solid record. And it's interesting for me as an, as, a, as an activist, I'm an activist journalist, to say that at this point, even for the LGBTQ community, we're kind of in flux too. A lot of the issues facing us right now is really on a national level. It's the undoing of, the Trump administration that we need to sort of well we've had setbacks that we need to sort of now go so it's not so much local unless it's like um you know a specific or an isolated thing but for the most part we have it pretty good in california and la and all of that but it'd be interesting to see your perspective as to what do you think the improvement needs to be and what makes you different from the other Democrats who've come on, uh, you know, who are sort of um, asking for the, for the queer vote, if you will.
0: No, thank you, Vic, for what you've said and for asking the question. You know, back in the 1990s, when it was very controversial to be, I wasn't just opposing the Defense of Marriage Act, I was supporting marriage equality. Um, and I took a lot of heat for that in my city council district at the time. Um, but it was the right thing to do then. I led the effort to prevent the Boy Scouts from using LA City facilities. You can imagine how controversial that was. Yeah. The reason I did that was because the Boy Scouts at that point had a discriminatory policy against members of the LGBT community. Yeah. And um, I recall, my I, I I'll just be very personal for a second. I remember when my son, who was in elementary school at the time, was asked by his friends to please join their Boy Scout troop. A Bunch of really nice guys. These were, these were the best buddies. And the parents were good people too. Um, but I explained to him what it would feel like if he had two dads and was, would be precluded from participating. If his dad would, if one of his dads wasn't allowed to lead that troop just because of his sexual orientation and, and my son who was maybe, I don't know, fourth or fifth grade at the time. I was really impressed because he was disappointed, but he fully understood. And he said, you know, that's right. Um, Sorry for the little digression, but this means a lot to me. I like
1: that. I like the person's story.
0: And and so um, just parenthetically, you know, um, in the state legislature, when I was in the state assembly, prop eight had been enacted and I decided that the legislature needed to take a stand. So I organized, I think about 65 current and former state legislators to join in a brief in the California Supreme Court to overturn Prop 8. And that's a very laboring. and that's not writing a bill that's going person to person saying, will you join in this? And look, friends of mine said, you're straight. Why were you doing that? And the answer as I hope is, is clear Vic is, yeah, I'm straight. And I have spent my life standing up for people who often have no one to stand up for them. And I have a very strong view about of all issues, sexual orientation and see in the days when I was first advocating on these issues in the 90s, people use the term sexual preference, like there was some choice involved, right? So we're going to say to somebody because of their orientation, they can't be who they want to be. Sorry, that doesn't cut it. So now I'm gonna take a little issue with you because I think on the one hand, we have marriage equality. I, I did, I will tell you, I led our office as city attorney. Our office wrote the brief for 226 cities in the Conference of Mayors in the US Supreme Court. We took that effort as a city attorney's office to help make sure that marriage equality was the rule of the day. And so good, that happens. But yet at the same time, just last week, I led an effort with two other city attorneys, the city attorney of San Francisco and San Diego, to reach out and say, Uber, there's an LA Times story that says that trans drivers are getting locked out of opportunities to be part of your platform because their photographs and their ID Mm -hmm. look different than who they are now. I wanted answers and I want them now because I don't want there to be that discrimination. And that's not 10 years ago, that is last week.
1: And that, there it is.
0: You know what I'm saying? So, you know, look, we, we prosecute hate crime. We prosecuted not long ago, hate crime against a, a trans victim downtown in a bar. Um, you can't tell me that we have yet reached where we need to be. Sure, California and LA in particular, if you're LGBTQ, you are much better off here. Than you might be in other parts of the country still but we still have far to go oh, um I, so I, anyway I, forgive me on that I, I i basically agree with you but i think there's a little bit of we have we have room to grow here too and i think it's really important for our leaders here to get that
1: this is the blunt post with vic on kpfk 90.7 fm I am your host, Vic Gerami, and you are listening to my interview with L.A. City attorney Mike Feuer, who is also a candidate for L.A. Mayor. I didn't mean to uh, make it sound like California is now a haven. It's a uh, it's city of Palm Springs by any means. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> we, we have room for improvement everywhere because uh, listen, I'll just put it out there. I'm, I'm my show is called The Blonde Post with Vic. There's homophobia in West Hollywood. So let's just put it at that. Yeah. My, uh, I was just, I meant the major.
0: Oh, you're, you're right. Of you right.
1: You know, we sure. have it so much better. So that's uh, definitely. It. By the way, a side note: uh, your, your, when you were uh, in the assembly, your district, and when you were dealing with the Boy Scouts, it was such an interesting district because you had the the desert area, uh, Palm Springs, which I think is. Uh, probably the gayest city in America, even, even more so than P-Town. And then you also have the conservative cities around it, which, which are a little bit of a contrast so that I can see the challenge there that you were facing with. Um, and I appreciate that. I appreciate that thorough answer. I'll ask you one more question and then, and then sure. I'll let you sort of have the last word and, and tell okay. me uh, my last one is this you you were a leader in um, co-authoring a law uh, prohibiting um, state contracts for businesses invested in uh, iran's energy sector for reasons that a lot of us know as well as um, uh, law requiring that uh, pers which is the retirement plans of city employees are not invested in in iran's sector now l a is a home to a very large Armenian American community. And most of us are going through it right now. We're going through the most traumatic period since the Armenian genocide. Uh, And a lot of people feel very helpless and unheard and ignored, feel like the international community has turned a blind eye because it's perpetuators of the the 2020 massacre of 5,000 Armenians in Artsakh, Azerbaijan and Turkey due to their oil and uh, gas and being in NATO and all of that are too powerful for any European nation or European agency to uh, ignore or to condemn. <clears throat> Have you ever considered something similar, even if it was just a, um, a formality as a message, uh, to do the same thing with Azerbaijan?
0: Well, for, for the answer is I haven't yet taken that step and of course, I have a different role now as city attorney. But I do want to say regarding that conflict, um, I've been extremely clear about the implications. And I, 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 I remember standing at an event and I said this, Vic, I said, today, we're all Armenians because they, uh, the uh, Azerbaijani aggression was um, extremely painful. And, uh, to, and it wasn't just is obviously most painful to the families on whom it was inflicted overseas, but to Armenian families here in Los Angeles, it was painful and direct as though they were being victimized themselves. So um, I've been extremely forceful in my vocabulary in the words that I've used Your point is, can can I imagine legislation that sanctioned Azerbaijan? And the answer is maybe. Um, Again, in Sacramento, I had the ability to write that kind of a law. As city attorney, I don't have that capacity. But I'm glad you raised the issue. And I do think, you know, words do matter. And the forcefulness with which we say them matters a lot as well. Um, You know, the conflict and and Artsakh, it was, it was, not only painful to watch, it was shameless to see the way it was enacted, too. It was like, you know, basically, you know, if if you remember, Vic, when Hitler started the Holocaust, he famously said, after all, who remembers the Armenians, right? You know that very well, right?
1: he said, uh, who nowadays remembers of the uh, the extermination of the Armenians as he was trying to convince his general about to invade Poland and start killing Jews, don't worry about it. No one's going to remember it because uh, no one gave a damn about the Armenians.
0: Exactly right. And yeah. I, when I, when the conflict in Artsakh broke out, for example, I had the same concern that there would be a moment when people will just forget. And so I take your point, and I'm glad that you raised it. You're always such a thoughtful host, and this has been a very eclectic conversation, which I really value. It says a lot about you.
1: I want you to have an opportunity to address, you know, different groups and different. Uh, you know, people have different things on their front burner and I think we covered a lot of things, which brings me to this. Uh, Mike, what is a question that I failed to ask you that I should have asked you and or what would you like to add before we go? Sure.
0: Well, let, let, me, let me say this. The, um, I mean, there are a whole bunch of questions we could have discussed about public safety, the climate crisis and its implications for Los Angeles. Uh, affordable housing we touched on, but for what it's worth, it's a gigantic issue. And the thing is, and this is maybe how I'll conclude, is on each of these issues, if you look at my website, nomikeforla.com, you will see very specific goals and plans for each of these areas. One thing that our listeners should know that I, I rarely get to talk about much is this. I've now run successfully for three different offices, city attorney, state assembly, and city attorney. I'm now running for mayor. Each time in my prior elections when I've won, I put up like a piece of butcher paper or a whiteboard and I list every single promise that I made in the course of the campaign. And Vic, I can tell you without exception, every single thing that I said as a candidate that I would do, I did. And our listeners should know that because when I list the elements of a plan for what I will do next as mayor, I don't do this lightly. I do this, you know, it's easy to pander to people in an election. It's easy to put a lot of stuff thinking no one's going to hold me accountable for ever doing this, right? Uh, that's reckless and it breaches faith with the voters and it's wrong. Everything I say I'm going to do, I'm going to make every effort I possibly can to make it happen. So far, I literally have done it all. And I think the question for our listeners as they evaluate who to vote for for mayor is this. We began with saying our city is in crisis and it is. So the key question is, which of the candidates has the proven record of leadership and accomplishment right here in Los Angeles, not elsewhere, here in LA, so that on the first day as mayor, they can hit the ground running and shake up a status quo that needs to be upturned and accomplish big, bold things. And if that's the test, If people know that they want a major change, but they want to have a person with experience who can actually effectuate that change, then I hope they'll decide I'm their candidate. Thanks, Vic.
1: That was great. By the way, your your website is, I really enjoy all the bullet points under every tab, every category, and also your bio. It starts very personal with your personal story, your parents and your childhood and all of that. So if you can tell us your website one more time so people can uh, join you, support you.
0: Great. Yes. Yeah. So it's Mike 4 LA, one word, Mike 4 LA.com. And Vic, I know we're signing off, but I do want to say one thing really fast. So we have like 30 seconds. Take your now. time. So you, you mentioned my parents and, you know, my father, I was thinking of as you were describing your background and so forth, you know, we all have the benefit of where we come from. Um, you know, my dad was a prisoner of war to the Nazis in World War II. And he didn't think he'd live through that. He'd been shot down, he couldn't walk. There was this huge march. He wanted his, his buddies, wanted to carry him, didn't happen. He said the guard with me could have shot me. No one would have heard the sound. We were so far behind. And he became an educator, public school educator for 60 years. And, you know, when I asked him why he chose his job, you know, my dad said, I did not think I'd survive. And when I did, I said I would do the most important work in the world. And I asked him that when I was a teenager and I wasn't smart enough then to realize he wasn't just telling me why he chose his job. He was telling me why I should choose mine. Most important stuff. You know, my mom, my dad passed away six years ago. He was just a fabulous human being. My mother is 90, you know, uh, and you know, still active. She grew up in Boyle Heights. And when she grew up, Boyle Heights was like the melting pot in the city. It had Russians and Japanese-Americans and Latina, a real melting pot. My mom said when she grew up, she spoke Russian, Yiddish, Spanish, and a little bit of English. That was the way it was. Uh, but, it. but when I was a kid, she told me when I was like in elementary school, she said to me, you know what? You need to stand up for people because I remember when all my Japanese-American friends were suddenly gone because our country hadn't turned them, like immediately when World War II started. And my mom said, you know what? If you see a person who has no one with them, isolated or they're being picked on, you gotta be that person, their friend. You have to stand for them. And I've tried to be the person who does that in my career. And you you have to mention my parents and I owe pretty much everything about the ideals and the values that I hold to my folks and i'm sure you say the same about about i know that that your dad very important for you so, thanks for the opportunity today to talk yeah. to you a little bit. i appreciate the morning very much
1: no no thank you mike this was great i hope we can uh, chat again before the election we have a a while to go but you're very thorough your website's great for those we of course we couldn't talk about all the topics but uh mikeforla.com it's uh you know basically puts it all in a very simple to read um, way, for those of you who want to know, where Mike stands on everything. Thank you again, Mike. It's an honor. Thanks thanks very much. Well, that was my very comprehensive interview with uh, LA City Attorney Mike Fuhrer, who is also running for LA Mayor. Uh, I'm very grateful to have had this opportunity to really get into uh, a lot of different topics. Of course, we couldn't uh, cover everything, but we talked about several. Uh, So I am very uh, thankful for your time, Uh, Mike. Appreciate it and hope to chat with you again before the election. Before we go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, without whom this show would not be possible, and KPFK, the station that brings you unfiltered and commercial-free news, opinion, and hopefully some inspiration. Thank you for joining me today on The Blunt Post with Vic. Tune in next Monday at 6 a.m. for another episode. For more information, please visit thebluntpost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at VicGerami. At V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. Thank you.
0: The Blunt Post with Vic.